0: John chapter 1 is our text, and I encourage you to turn there in the New Testament. Last year, I delivered, I was assigned a passage from John 1 that, frankly, I spent some of my best or most uh, uh, laborious, if you will, uh, look into that text. And so today, I want you to know, as we say in the part of the state that I'm from, I went milking some new cows, okay? And I am bringing to you some insights that I gained from two people so if you've read these resources I want you to know I am telling you right up front I borrowed some of this from them praise God for their gifts. Number one from Chuck Swindoll who was an EV free pastor years ago and president of Dallas Theological Seminary. His commentary on John is especially insightful and Dr. Gerald Borchert who was my New Testament professor in seminary. They both provided help to me, deciding what to give attention to and what to leave out. And frankly, much is going to be left out. Listen to what Borchard says about these first 18 verses of John. He says, they have a wonderful poetic read, uh, ring, but they've been labeled by scholars, maybe even your Bible, with an unpoetic title. So if you look in your Bible, it may say the prologue. But in spite of its poetic ring, the reader should be forewarned that the prologue is one of the most complex theological statements in the Bible. An entire seminary semester course could be taught on these first 18 verses. Study of this text takes time, but those who ponder these magnificent words will learn that God will reward His children who diligently and prayerfully seek for understanding. So let's read the text together, and in honor of God and the reading of God's Word, would you stand to your feet if you're able? The Apostle John wrote, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made." For from His fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh church. This is a rich, 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 deep, deep passage. But frankly, it is truly a different type of passage. The language in it stands apart from much of the rest of the book, and for that matter, the rest of the other Gospels. You should understand that this section could stand on its own. If you have your Bible open, just look at that section. 1, 1 through 18, you could pluck that out which we're not doing, but you could, you could pluck it out, you could get begin the gospel in verse 19, and it would look a little bit more like the other gospels. Why? It stands on its own. It's important. Not only for the first century readers, but how about for you today? Well, let me offer you this. Let's consider where we are as a culture and have been for many years. In 1964, there was an English teacher, Thayer Warsaw, who taught at Newton High School near Boston, one of the elite high schools in the nation. And Thayer was worried that public schools, banning the Bible, the students would be deprived from an important part of actually their culture. To make his point, he devised a quiz on common allusions to the Bible, to Scripture, as they appear in secular literature and language. And despite the obvious intelligence and the first-rate education that these students were getting, the majority of these college-bound students found these questions more difficult than they could adequately answer. Let me offer them to you in your bulletin, and let's just give it a go and see how you do this morning. All right. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Very good. 63% of the students got that wrong. Many are called, but few. 79% got that wrong. The truth shall make you 84%. Nope. Couldn't recall that. Pride goeth before 88%. 88%. And the love of money is the root of all evil. 93%. Several students in this, received this, this nationally acclaimed school, they thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were lovers. Many named the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. And according to these top-ranked students, Eve was created from an apple, Moses baptized Jesus, and Jesus spoke in parodies. When working with university students, Chuck Swindoll tells of how he used a simple questionnaire, which included this question, Who, in your opinion, was Jesus of Nazareth? The most common response was, the Son of God. That response actually surprised him. He expected, he was a great teacher. He was a founder of Christianity. He was a martyr who died for his beliefs. But when he followed up with this question, how did you come to that conclusion? The most common response was, I don't know. This is true even today, even among believers, professing believers. They know the right answer, but you might not know why the answer is true. And I don't want to belabor the point, but hear me out. You may have convictions that you hold as actual Bible, but are not biblically informed. They're not. You may even think the Bible teaches something like this. God helps those that help themselves. Do you know that's not That's not Bible, especially in light of the New Testament, in light of the gospel that throws open the door that God helps those who come to the end of themselves and realize desperately they need a savior. That's who God helps. Professing believers are answering questions in more and more non-biblical ways. Let me offer you two more examples from last year, from my last year's message, that you may remember from Ligonier in Christianity Today who does this survey. They make a statement, and you agree, somewhat agree, fully agree, strongly agree. Listen to this. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Among evangelicals in this mix, 40% agreed with that statement. Number two, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Do you know that more than 50% somewhat agreed or even strongly agreed with that statement? This morning as we spend time in this first chapter of John's gospel, I'm going to tell you right up front, I'm going to assume that you might know less than you do. I don't want to offend any great Bible student in this room. But it's important that we understand that when you open the gospel of John, you are opening something different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they build a case throughout their text that answers this question, who is this Jesus? John doesn't do that. He tells us more, way more Right up front, we find out who Jesus is before his birth. He goes way before his birth. The Apostle John wrote his account of Jesus' life to reveal to us the identity of Jesus so that you and I would respond in true faith. So in this first section, this section we read, John 1, 1 through 18... There are four reasons that he lays out to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. Jesus Christ is God. Number one, verses one and two, Jesus Christ is eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. When John says, in the beginning, he's, he is marking this. He's marking that there were eons of time, time is measured in space, marking, but there was time before time, eons of time before it was measured, before God began to create, he is saying the word was there. In the beginning was the word. Pastor Brian, I am talking to my third, my wife hates this. I'm not hip. I am not a hit man. My attempts to be that way only prove that I am not. Do you remember? Even in the last twenty years, the slang word, like word, it was the, it meant to agree or I got it or true word. It, you saw it right there. I am not hit. Okay, that is not how John is using this term. The word, word, is a Greek word, logos, and it had a complex meaning in Greek philosophy that had actually been around three to six hundred years before the birth of Christ. The philosophy affirmed this, truth was transcendent. Before time, it was linked to the universe or the God of the universe, if you believed in the God. It just simply did not change. If there was a God, this timeless reality was ever-present. This is the root, this word logos, is where we get words like theology, psychology, cosmology, biology. John says, this Jesus... Who he is going to tell us much more about had a story that preexisted his birth. He is eternal and he reveals. John 1 has striking parallel to John or to Genesis 1 1, which reads, In the beginning God, and then in John 1, in the beginning was the word. That's how the Bible begins. In the beginning God, Scripture affirms that God is the principal subject of the Bible and the God of the Bible creates and He designs purpose for His creation. And John tells us that the God you see in the beginning, He actually has a name even though He's not told us His name yet. And He is eternal. He existed before creation itself. So hear this, when you look at the text, John starts, I mean, he starts big, way big. Contemplating eternity, past and future, is impossible for the mind's eye. Your brain is locked up in that skull of yours, and it's finite in space. You can think about it for a few minutes, but basically, if you really give effort, you just get exhausted. Like, how far, how much? We think in, t- times of, in terms of time and space. John's telling us, before time and space, God is, and then he acts. In fact, he is going to introduce us to Jesus. And he tells us that he had pre-existence to his body. He is the eternal son of God. So let's just stop here for a second. I'll ask you, what does this mean for you today in 2023? See, Jesus in this Christmas season, you may have him locked up in that little manger. And it's an important understanding that Christ was born. And yes, in Bethlehem. And there were adoring shepherds and angels saying, yeah, all that, all that, yes. But understand this, John's telling us he existed as the eternal God and is central to all that follows. And because of that, you and I would be wise to pay attention. Number two, Jesus Christ is the creator. All things were made by him. John is building a picture. He moves in big broad strokes that will take us down to a small detail, a detail that has big implications for you. But you have to stay with him. He tells us that all that is created was done by the pre-existent son of God. And what he does is he states it as a fact, and he just simply moves on. It's there in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, there is emphasis. The preexistent word did not remain eternally content, although he was fully and completely content. He did not need creation. He did not need you. God was holy, whole, and... Without us. But John exposes that the God of the Bible, what he does is he acts. And when he acts, he creates. And we get to see and touch it. When science tells us that we came from nothing and we have no meaning, it's usually a head-scratcher for any careful-thinking person. The Bible declares... The nothing that you imagine, when there was nothing, there was God. And God created by this. He didn't like, he's not up there just mapping it out, like, how am I going to do this? He just speaks, and there it is. He speaks words. He speaks the vast universe into existence. And specifically gives life by deliberately and awesomely speaking into existence all that we get to see and all that we get to enjoy. John tells us, there is a, so, there's a source. He has not named him yet as Jesus, but make no mistake, he is building and exposing that Jesus is the architect of creation. If you have your Bible, flip over into the New Testament to Colossians chapter 1. In fact, the Apostle Paul expands this truth by telling us there, He is the image of the invisible God. He meaning Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether And look, he, something new, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Outside of Judaism and Christianity, there was pervasive belief in John's day. There was non-created matter, non-creation matter. And John, what he does here is he denies that by telling us everything, everything, yes, everything in heaven and on earth that you see and that which you cannot, all of it has come into place, has its beginning in the pre incarnate Son of God. So if you have the ability to see, all that you see has a source. If you behold beauty, Source behind it. When you see a sunset, He is the maker of it. When you hear a mountain stream or move by crashing waves at the ocean shore, feel the warmth of the sun or the joy or dread of snowfall. Oh, it has an author. It's the pre incarnate Son of God. All that we touch, all that is good, birds, fish, grass, shade, trees, His design for His purpose, for His glory. A couple years ago, thank you, church, for allowing me to have a sabbatical. I had a bucket list thing that I got to do. I got to go to Montana, um, saw Glacier National Park. But one of the sweetest days was a day that my wife and I uh, talked to a park ranger, and they told us to drive south in the Swan River Valley and to turn off this certain ro- road we drove for seven miles on a gravel and dirt road, and the road ended. Ended. There was a sign there that said, there's the path, and that's about it. All right? And so it, there was a hiking path to a place called Cold Lakes. You can look it up. Cold Lakes butts up against the Flathead Indian Reservation, but it's on United States government land. So it's three miles one way to this Lake. So we hiked it. And along the way, I ate wild huckleberries that were growing along the path. I touched fauna, soft colors that I had never seen. Hues that were brand new. And the lake, you kind of descend this little path and suddenly this lake comes into view and there's an opening and behind it, 3,000 feet of Rocky Mountains. And I will tell you, I don't know how to describe that moment to you other than just tell you what happened to me. My wife can attest to this. For some strange reason, I broke into this mixture of laughing and crying in the same moment. It was too much almost to take in. And that is God's creation. It is not God. He is the author of it. It's like a complex flavor of a gourmet meal. In that single spot, and there are many in His creation, God designs for us to enjoy but never to worship. Oh, church, in this Christmas season, be reminded, our Savior is not relegated to baby Jesus in a manger. Yeah, see him there. But see him before that moment and all that follows. See that all of creation exists. What exists is his. And we glorify and trust him for what he has made and what he invites us to know. Number two, number three. John tells us that Jesus Christ is the source of life. So what you do with him has implications for your life and death. And he really kind of lays this out, verse 4 through 13. When John starts in verse 4, I want you to see this. You can read this later. John shifts language from the large, more to a particular focus. He starts talking about living things, including humans. He tells us that in Jesus, there is life. And that he is the light of men. Now, some symbols in language are so universal, they transcend human experience. Doesn't matter what language you have, light is one of those. They cross cultural barriers, even linguistic barriers. Students of art and literature, they know these symbols as archetypes. The color green, for example, symbolizes growth and new life. Winter alludes to bleakness and hardship. In biblical and ancient literature, truth is usually pictured as light. When someone gains wisdom, we say that he or she has been what? Enlightened. And John's telling us that the source of light and life is Jesus. The light comes and it invades darkness. Darkness cannot do anything with it but run away. And darkness is symbolic language for the state of man, your state, without God. Our sin has relegated us to darkness. In fact, we are told in John three nineteen, in no uncertain terms, John says, People love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. It's an indictment. It's an indictment about darkness. In fact, we have the, may have the ability to see. And even in seeing, we are in love with darkness. Jesus invades this darkness. He comes to dispel the darkness and despair in your life. He is the light of men. You have had moments, they vary in this room, but each of us have had those desperate moments. Confusion that came from them has been paralyzing. That moment, when recalled, has incredible pain. It's amazing. We can't recall physical pain and feel it. We certainly can recall emotional pain. That moment when a spouse said, I don't love you anymore, I don't want to be married to you, I'm out. Or a doctor saying to you, I'm sorry, there is nothing else we can do. Where the limits of your resources became known, you felt weak, you felt darkness closing in. Some of you have known moments where your limited abilities, the scale of your skill set, was not enough for your employer. And they had a conversation with you that was incredible pain, incredibly painful and le- left you feeling walking in the dark. Your soul felt dark. Maybe even feels in this moment, in this December, dark even now. Darkness has us crying like children, afraid of the dark. Is anyone there? I can't see. Sin does this to us. And it even blinds us to our greatest enemy. Just this, earlier this week, by the grace of God, I have a conversation with my son, Will, who was reading to me from a book he was reading, and I can't remember the author's name, but there was just a moment like, "Oh, that's rich, and so I share it with you." The author said this: "You're not too important to die." In the past few weeks, a former governor in the state of Kentucky that I, I know personally, he's in his 90s, up in the middle of the night, falls, dies. A young man, motorcycle accident, dies. Disease, accidents, these things happen. But you and I constantly live in this fog that we are just not going to die. We don't think about death. Certainly not our own. We get brushed up against it and we talk about it in terms. We downplay, we say... He passed away. I heard a banker just recently say, He's no longer with us. No, the reality is, He died. You will die. Jesus comes to defeat death. To defeat the consequences of your sin, which is death. Reckon with it. It is a reality. That is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to invade the darkness, and it has no chance with Jesus. His presence drives it away. That's what he does. And number four, Jesus Christ, though completely human, he reveals the Father. This is found out in verse 14 through 18. You can see it. Uh, John's just telling us, God can be known. He can be known. The idea that if there is a God, he can't be known, that's just just not so biblically. Every text has a context. And when you simply read things and not understand that there is historical and or cultural context, one of the things that happens is we uh, easily misinterpret things. Let me give you a for instance. Take, for instance, when Jesus says to Nicodemus you must be born again. Or when he says down in John 6, 35, you you eat my flesh and drink my... If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You have no life in you. On the surface, being born again, that's like, that's impossible or repulsive. The idea of eating flesh and drinking blood. Again, you got to understand context. And what Jesus is addressing. And so when you read John 1, 14, please look at the text. We should understand that John is telling us something that had a moment. True in historical context. In human history, your history and mine. He is making an argument about the pre-incarnate life of Jesus... But now he comes from the big down into the particular, the individual. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I said this last year. I will say it again. If that does not stupefy you, shock you then your idea of God is likely too small. How can this eternal God that creates, speaks it in... How? Why? Why? The reason why is because you needed rescue. You and I need a rescue. The one who spoke all that we see into existence was born a man. And the title of this message today, this Christmas message is Christmas, the meat of the matter. This is the meaning of Christmas. It's found in this one verse. God is not distance; He is coming to make himself known. He is a man. He is born of a virgin. And this word flesh, the word became flesh, this word for flesh is a word from the original meaning has a lot more punch than what you see in Flesh. In fact, some of you may have translations that say, and the word became human. Again, it falls short. This this Greek word is where we get the word carnivorous. Do you know what Paul is saying in blunt language? Jesus, the preexistent Son of God, became meat. He became meat, meaning he had bone and blood, and tissue. He could be bruised, and yes, he bled. He could be hurt. And if he was walking among those who had colds, Jesus was likely to catch a cold. He was fully human. Arising in the first century, there was a heretical teaching now referred to as docetism. It was popularized by the idea that all matter, anything you could touch, all humans basically were base, not good. So there was no way that Jesus actually could be human. He could not have drank anything. He only appeared that way. So when you read any of the Gospels and you see Jesus touching people, the authors are taking that right on. No He touched people. He ate things. And when he said to Thomas, come here, put your hand in my side, Thomas felt the skin and bone of Jesus, the Christ. Yes, you need to come to grips with this. That's what John's telling us. In fact, Eugene Peterson tells us that this particular verse, uh, he gives it in his message translation. He said, And the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That explains it. In other words, if you were alive in first century uh, Palestine, in and around Nazareth, and you were having a conversation with a friend and said, you ever wonder what God's like? That friend could have said to you, yeah. Right down the street, go spend some time with Jesus. That's what he's like. You want to know what God's like? That's what God is like. Understand Christianity stands apart from world religions. Jesus is not a son of God or a God or a prophet. No, John is particular. The claim is pivotal to his defeat of sin. It is this. Jesus is God made flesh to defeat what defeats us, and that is sin. It's the only way it could be done. And we are invited to come near and see that God comes for us and invites us to know Him. I'll occasionally hear people say, you know, Jesus, He, he never claimed to be God. They don't know their Bible. Let me show you two places that speak directly to that, if that might be even you. John 8, 24 says this. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. For the Jewish readers, they knew what that meant. He was claiming, I am the one that identified to Moses. As God revealed himself to Moses, I am that I am. That's what Jesus was claiming in that moment. And if you look down a little further in John 8, 58. Jesus said, truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. Now, think about this. The Jewish listeners who heard this, their spiritual father was Abraham. And the reason in that verse that they picked up stones to stone him is because in unequivocal terms, understand this, Jesus was claiming to be God. The God who revealed and existed before their spiritual father, Abraham. Christmas can be so confusing. What's it all about? Is it the lights, the smells, the gifts, the red and the green, the old movies, children anticipating music that you either love or not so much? All right? What Christmas means is Emmanuel. God with us. He can be known. In the latter part of verse 14, we are introduced to a new, deeper, specific. John calls him son. The word son appears. And it's the first time in the gospel that John uses it. And over 60 times in the gospel, he uses this in reference to who Jesus is, the son of God. Jesus is the only son from the Father. Islam teaches from the cradle to all who are a part of Islamic culture. God cannot have a son. Having a son is only possible through sex. It is heretical to believe that God could have a son. It's cultural. It's deeply ingrained. It's a teaching that only the Holy Spirit of God can explain to the heart and to the head. And it's testified in Holy Scripture. God did not have sex. The Spirit of God within the Virgin Mary conceived the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. So why does that matter for you today? It's because of this. John's laying out. That Jesus invites you to know who He really is. He invites you to know Him. It's far different. Thank you, J.I. Packer. There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. See, the birth of the Son of God, God in the flesh, is not just a miracle. You know what it is? It's an invitation for you. God comes to defeat sin and death, our consequence from our sin and the curse that's on our life. He knows everything about you, everything, everything that no one else might know. Yet he invites you to come to him. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He comes to you as savior. He reveals himself to you as your good king. You and I, we can live our lives. You might live your life declaring that you believe in God. You might say, I believe in Jesus. You believe in a heaven. You don't like to think about hell, but yeah, maybe there's a hell. You can see God as big and yourself as small. Yet what is going on there is you just have knowledge about God. You can live your life. Seeing that God's open scripture and there's truth. But knowing him involves you coming to grips. That God's final word to us is in Jesus. You're looking for hope? It's found in Jesus. He is your only hope for forgiveness. He is our only hope for right standing before a holy, powerful, unimaginable, perfect God. He can make you right. So I want to be personal and transparent. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not. When I first came to some level of faith in Christ, I trusted that, yeah, I trusted Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Okay. It's kind of like that. My sins were paid for. Okay. Okay. I spent months as a young believer talking about faith in God. I talked about believing in God and wanting to know more about God's wonderful plan for my life, which came out of a track. It took a person that I don't even remember their name in a conversation say to me, where is Jesus in your life? She spoke about Christ as a person that she knew, her Savior and her friend. She knew her sins were forgiven. She understood that about who he was and what he had done for her personally. And only in time did God help me actually see Jesus was my only hope. Believing in him changes. Hear me. Believing in Christ changes the direction of your life. And so I ask you, can you say that about your faith in Christ? Is your faith truly in Him? Do you know that John, at the end of his book, this book, in chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us his intent. It reads this way. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Today, God invites you. I'm firmly convinced in this room there are people that need to hear the reality. God invites you to move past knowing about God to actually coming to know Jesus in the person of His Son who gave His life for you, who is the only sufficient payment for your sin. And he is the only victor over the grave. And because he is victorious over the grave, you and I can be victorious over the grave. The enemy that all of us have. Jesus is the center of it all. He is the center of all that brings new life. And this Christmas even, he is the center of it all. Now and for the eternity that you cannot imagine. You can't imagine all the amazing days in the future for you who know Christ. John six thirty seven tells us this. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Hear His voice. Hear His invitation. You don't have to have it all figured out. Hear the invitation to come to Him. If you're weary, you're broken, and you know it, Christ Jesus is the answer that your soul longs for. Let's pray. Oh, Father, only as you can. Oh, Lord, right where people sit in this room, please draw them. Convict them of their sin, but show them you are sufficient and good for cleansing them to new life. Remind them in all their confusion and all the things that they just don't have figured out right now. That's not the issue. Their past need not define them. You define future. Show them your saving love. And for all of us, oh, oh Father... For your church. Grant to us. Fresh. Cleansing power in our life. Draw us to see. Your marvelous love. That you give us in Christ Jesus. In him we trust. And we pray. Amen.